Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And today we are going to be talking about a novel by Flannery O'Connor called Wise Blood. Uh, Jared, do you want to say maybe a word about who Flannery O'Connor was? Yeah, so Flannery O'Connor is a 20th century um, Southern Gothic writer. So she's our first American on... Nope, I take it back. We had Frederick Douglass. She's our second American author. Um, And Douglass was from Maryland, so I guess you could say we've only read Southern Southern writers. O'Connor is probably best known for her short stories, which I admit I haven't... I've only read Wise Blood in the past, um, though... So this is my second read of Wise Blood, but I've never read anything else by O'Connor. But it's one of those people I've been meaning to read. Um, I believe she died when she was under 40. I'm looking this up. She was, yeah, she died in 1964 at age 39. So a rather tragic figure. And she's also notable for being a Catholic writer in the United States, where when we think of most of what we might call the Catholic novel, um, we do not maybe immediately think of uh, white ladies from the South. Uh, it's not like the first uh, image you think of, but O'Connor is. Mm-hmm. And she's actually kind of maybe one of the most distinctive American Catholic writers. I think there's some interesting cultural aspects of that. I mean, um, it comes out through actually in the novel a couple times where uh, there's a perception, at least in the American South, that Catholicism is a foreign religion and so mm-hmm. there there's kind of an yeah. innate suspicion of it um and so uh so anyway so it is very she is very unique perhaps we could say a couple words about just the catholic novel in general um before we jump into this specifically i mean i think we we mentioned it before um last time i confessed i had not read any flannery o'connor despite the fact that i love the catholic novel um but I guess it might help us uh, because we, maybe we have some listeners who aren't very familiar with the Catholic novel. What What is it that we mean when we talk about Catholic novels? So Catholic novels, I would say, are not just novels that are written by Roman right. Catholics, um, right? But instead are novels which in a literary style can somehow expound on like the dogmatic or moral teachings of the Catholic Church. Um how to the the degree to which they can do this and how they go about this seems to be able to vary quite uh widely if you would call wise blood a catholic novel which i think you could there's clear religious themes it's written by a catholic writer she's clearly informed by her catholicism um wise blood is a very different novel than say anything by graham green who is probably the writer i think of when you first hear the catholic novel i probably think of like the power and the glory Um, which that one is so much more obviously a Catholic novel because it's about a priest, um, a priest in um, revolutionary uh, Mexico um, trying to survive, basically, and trying to continue to be a priest while also going through a profound crisis of faith. Um, Wise Blood similarly does have a character who is traveling and who is going through a crisis of faith. The type of character is very different, and the response to that crisis is very different. So I would say we probably can't uh, pinpoint exact themes that are traced through all the novels we would call the ca- part of the Catholic novel, uh, but a kind of working out of religious teachings 
through literary illustration rather than through a dogmatic or philosophical slash theological argumentative style uh, is going to be a part of it. I do think with with the Catholic novel, and, and this is, I mean, with a category like this, it's possible, I think, to paint with too broad a brush. But I, in general, they're, um, at least in my reading, they often do tend to be a little darker. Um, so like we were just mm-hmm. talking about Pilgrim's Progress uh, before we got on and you know there I mean there's a, there are definitely struggles in Pilgrim's Progress but um, in some ways the biggest struggle with Pilgrim's Progress is trying to read <laughs> that's it that's true that's true but there yeah. there are some ways in which like when I read uh, when I read Pilgrim's Progress like the main character Christian doesn't feel very human to me um, because he's not, I mean, he's kind of supposed to be, a an archetype, you know? Um, but when you read mm-hmm. a Catholic novel, there is often a kind of grittiness to it. Um, a kind of, a kind mm-hmm. of introspection. Um, I mean, uh, Jared, I know you're a big Augustine fan as, as am I, you know, you read the confessions and there is a ton of, uh, interiority, you know, searching, searching in the mm-hmm. interior. Um, and you, you don't always like everything you find there. <laughs> You know, and um, yeah. and and so sitting with that kind of uncomfortableness of of who we are, and and the kind of contradictions that make us who and what we are, um, I think are often in the fore um, in in the Catholic novel, and so you get this kind of complexity, yeah. um, which is interesting because you know people often I think some sometimes there's a caricature of of people of faith that that, that they have very sort of simple and and you know one size fits all solutions to things, and I think the Catholic novel is a really good way of getting out of that mode of thinking about how how religion works you know um it's much more complex yeah so very distinctively for augustine in the confessions there's that moment where he realizes or kind of can admit that he did something that was sinful because it was sinful right right he did it because he wanted to do wrong and that's so antithetical to the way that we like to think about doing wrong. We want to say, oh, there was another motivation. It was really good. He even admits like the pears that he steals in the famous illustration. He didn't like them or he didn't think they were that good. They were just fine. He did it because he was wrong and he wanted to break the rules. And that speaks to himself, right? That means like, what am I if I'm someone who wants to do something that is wrong? Mm. Not just like by accident, but because it is wrong. Uh, And there's that kind of darkness there. And with a lot of novels that I've read sort of in this broad stream of novels, there will be those moments where the character gives in and just does something wrong and, and wants to. Graham Greene, you often just see the priest in The Power and the Glory is not a heroic figure for a lot of it. He's just kind of running around. He's um, kind of kind of exploiting uh, some of the people he runs into there's this arrangement where they have to pay him to say mass like they don't have access to the priest but he doesn't have access to work so there's this weird thing and he, he tries to basically get as much money as he can can from them in order to hear their confessions and say mass you know these, these sorts of things and then he has to realize like what have i become as a priest if that's the kind of person that i am and he's a whiskey um, priest too and, he's an alcoholic yes yeah he's an alcoholic and also, he's trying to flee. He mm-hmm. wants to leave, which would mean leaving behind all of those Catholics who would who would need it, right? So he he has to deal with all of these things. And similarly, we'll talk about Wise Blood, you know, in detail as we uh, go throughout this episode. But um, there is a lot of darkness in this novel, and and that's also I would say a trend in Southern Gothic novels that there is often a lot of darkness. There's often a feature of the grotesque, and um, because of that, I would say. Southern Gothic novels and the Catholic novel do 
synthesize very well. And so O'Connor is like, if O'Connor didn't exist, we would have to invent her, right? Like they, we would we would be asking, why wasn't there something like this? Yeah. Yeah. What did you just off the bat? What did you think of this as someone who hadn't read it before? Yeah, it was very interesting. I I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and um, in fact, once I got to a certain point, I found it hard to put down. I had to sort of just see it through, and and I I couldn't stop reading it. Um, I did feel like there wasn't um. A very clear plot, um, and and we talked about this beforehand. But you know, this this was sort of her taking a couple different shorter works that she had done and putting them into one larger work. So you can sort of do a kind of almost textual criticism of like figuring out which strand comes from where, you know, and and separating the different different kind of themes and 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 things from the from the story but i i i did like it quite a bit um and and i feel like it'll be the kind of thing because you've read it before i feel like if i come back to this maybe in a year read it a second time i i i imagine i would walk away with a number of of different insights um but what about you so because this is the second time you've read it so what (laughs) what maybe stood out to you this time that you hadn't noticed before i would say in general i liked it more the second time which is not uncommon for me. Um, I left thinking it was good, not great the 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 first time. I'm still not convinced it's like an excellent novel. Like it has, it's like really hit uh, literary excellence, which is why I want to go read more O'Connor because I know there are so many people who are invested in her work. But I think it's better than my original assessment, definitely. And I could see um, the humanity of the characters a little more clearly uh, in my second reading where I didn't feel like Hazel Motes was a human being when I first read this novel. Like, um, I I just couldn't see into his mind enough, right? And, and similarly with Enoch Emery, or basically any, any of the characters, other than, like, Hoover Schultz, right, who has just a very superficial kind of motivation, uh, and so you can easily see he's human because you don't have to, like, wrestle with his complexities or something. Uh I just didn't have a conception of who they were as people. And I thought that was a failing on O'Connor's part. I think that there are more complexities there that I have seen now that became more apparent to me. And the novel in general was an easier read the second time as well. It's not a hard read, but um, the I'm going to call it the the, 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 the second act uh, in sort of a three-act structure, but the second act is like the largest part of this mm-hmm. book by far. Um, and... That can often feel a little rambly. It can feel a bit wandering. Uh, we said before we recorded, my my sense of O'Connor in this novel is that she is a first-time novelist who is a skillful short story writer uh, who hasn't achieved greatness when it comes to writing the the novel yet. And and I stand and I I think I would stand by that. Um, this textually, we we've talked about this before, but the novel is kind of composed of stories that she had previously written. So this was a first, this was a novelist trying to just put some stuff together in a way. Maybe she had always imagined they could come together, but she does feel a little stitched together and individual chapters often have a very nice kind of package to them. Uh, And what I find with first novels is that oftentimes the writer has a lot of things to say, but can't say all of them well. 
And that then you're going to see that kind of middle period where maybe a writer can say one thing very well. And then like the real greats eventually will be able to say many things well in the same novel and somehow make them all clear. O'Connor is not at those stages yet here. Uh, but she clearly has a lot to say. She's clearly thinking in nuanced ways. And so she's a worthy person to be discussing and it's a worthy novel for the for the podcast. But it's probably the first work that we've discussed where I have some degree of ambivalence to, toward mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Where I not not total uh, I, I don't totally dislike it. In fact, I do think it's good. But there are things to criticize about it in, in a way that I don't know if I could improve Macbeth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I guess maybe it might be helpful to summarize briefly exa- what's going on in the novel. Um, like I said, it's it's hard to identify, I think, a clear plot in the sort of traditional sense. That doesn't mean that it can't be summarized. It just makes it a little difficult. But but basically, we have a character named Hazel Motes who comes back from war, and he finds his his home where he grew up is abandoned, and um, presumably his, his mother and uh, has died. Um, so he goes to a city um, where he basically invents a religion that he calls uh, the Church Without Christ, um, and so he 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 often goes around telling people he doesn't need to be saved, that there's nothing wrong with him, um, there's no guilt, uh, redemption wouldn't do make a difference to him because there's nothing to be redeemed from, and he's trying to mm-hmm. get converts, but really it's just him kind of yelling off of his the hood of his car at people, and it, you, you get the idea that he's not really uh, very successful at, at getting disciples. Um, yeah. There is another character, uh, Enoch Emery, who kind of tries to build a relationship with Hazel. Um, younger guy, also uh, came from the country into the city, um, works at the zoo, uh, really tries his hardest. And it's almost sort of sad how, how out of the way Enoch goes to, uh, to befriend Hazel. But uh, Hazel always is pushing him away. Um, and uh, Hazel becomes obsessed with a preacher, a blind preacher. And his daughter, um, who, well, uh, supposedly blind preacher, who he follows around and eventually even re- uh, rents a room in the house that they also live in. Um, and uh, But he, he likes to harass the preacher and r- remind him that he doesn't need to be saved. Um, so it's very, it's very interesting. The, the, the characters are very, um, I guess I could see where maybe on your first read it's hard to see them as, as fully human. They almost seem like caricatures. It's not the case for any of the characters in this book that their most distinctive quality is one that the reader will like. Right, right. So oftentimes you will have a character in a novel who's maybe very funny and very sociable and you think that's very nice, but they're greedy, right? And we and then we talk about how like, oh, this vice can undo all of this good, right? But for Hazel, his main quality really is he's like he's outspoken and he is going through a serious crisis of meaning and faith, like a a genuine existential crisis in a way that makes him abrasive and aggressive and violent. Um, And if I encountered a man like Hazel on a train, I would try to move cars, right? Um, Enoch Emery is probably the kindest character there. I think, you know, O'Connor, just like with Hazel, does not have the vocabulary of like post-traumatic stress disorder. But, um, does seem to be writing 
about a soldier surviving PTSD in like the real like sense, like, you know, old shell shock that doesn't doesn't wear off. Similarly with Enoch Emery, you get the sense that maybe this is like, frankly, if someone wrote a paper arguing that Enoch Emery was like autistic, mm. right? Where he can become hyper fixated, where he does seem to be very good at certain things, <laughs> at, at, at certain things, but he has this sense of like weird purpose and like he can't justify it to other people. He needs things to be very particular in his like kind of kind of way, which right? is like so, which is where the title comes from, right? Wise blood. Yeah, he talks about having the wise blood. Yeah. Um, or if not autistic, then like neuroatypical, right? To use the more the, the more general term, um, in a way that can make him very hard to socialize with, mm. right? Even though I do find Enoch Emery the most endearing character yeah. here, but then like Asa Hawks, who's the blind preacher, well, his most distinctive feature is that he's a preacher who's blind, and as we find out, he's not blind. Uh, uh, um, he's he fakes it, and, and he's his a drunk daughter, too. and he's a drunk. And he's abusive towards his daughter. And then his daughter, Sabbath Lily, Sabbath Lily Hawks, um, she really is, um, she has realized that her way to survive in the world is to become a sexual object or an object of desire towards men. And um, basically will use her body to try to like ingratiate herself. And, but you also use a kind of emotional control, mm -hmm. right? So she wants to both like seduce, um, hazel but also she's going to exercise kind of a kind of a level of emotional abuse to get him to like behave as she wants him to behave right. so that she can like live off of him right and just basically every character you meet has their most distinctive feature makes them very grating for you again the only character who's not like that in the sense that you feel like that you think they're blameworthy for it really is like enoch emery where it's just like he does some weird stuff right <laughs> right um but he's um he at least has a sense like he wants to relate to other human beings. Right. Um, and he can't find it. I don't know. I think I think I disagree with you a little bit here. I, th I mean, I think you're right. I think I think Enoch Emery is probably the most endearing character. I I felt a. A kind of draw to Sabbath Lily as I was reading, because oh, I because I did. I thought her humanity was maybe one of the clearest pictures of humanity in in the book um you know mm. her father is abusive she knows mm -hmm. he's going away he tells her like mm -hmm. i'm i'm leaving and you're on your own so you know figure mm -hmm. something out so that's where she comes up with the plan oh well i have to seduce this guy so that he'll take care of me basically and i think she does like him i mean she is kind of attracted to him uh anyways yeah. now there is that kind of manipulative control that she tries to to exhibit over him but i i read that more as um because her father has abandoned her before and then abused her and all that this is her way of trying to you know carve out a, a space for herself um yeah, yeah maybe i'm doing too much work for her, but i really i really felt bad for her almost more than anyone else i i enoch you also feel bad for her because it's a similar situation right he had his um his dad had the had the wife i think who was very religious and um he hated her so much and like mm -hmm. runs away and she sends him to the christian school and he hates that too um so yeah. he's obviously been he through just, a lot as well but um he describes it as like being traded to her mm -hmm. uh <laughs> as if like his father traded her for for something and she yeah so enoch is a character who is abandoned by his father 
can't live with this woman, can't make it in school. His dad makes him, he says, makes him come to the city. Yep. Though he has no contact with his father anymore. Right. Um, there's a very touching moment where he says he has this pouch where he keeps his money and he really loves it because it's the only thing aside from himself that his fa- that he owns that his father has touched. Um, and so he's dealing, obviously he's recovering from this life of trauma. Sabbath Lily's also recovering from this life of trauma. Um, Asa Hawks, you know, his character is reeling with the fact that he he tried to he publicly proclaimed that he would blind himself mm. and then right and then to prove his faith and then he loses his nerve and that's revealed through a second newspaper clipping that we see in in, in the there and so then he has to he goes around he has the scars as if he used lime to um blind himself but he has to fake being blind uh, or chooses to fake being blind so he has to live with the fact that he's not really blind basically every every day right um and then hazel is recovering from the war right like every one of the characters that we're revolving around is dealing with some some real um i mean some some real issues and this is actually this is actually something i think o'connor is actually very good at where she does make you feel sympathy for people who historically you would not feel a lot of sympathy for meaning just like these would be people who would be treated as like weird or defective or something. So the the shell shock sh- soldier sort of famously the response was just to like tough it out, right? Because we didn't have a grasp on how severe like post traumatic stress disorder can actually be. Uh, I think anyone who who thinks about like the history of being you know autistic or uh, any other kind of like neurological divergence knows that many of these people were treated as basically nuisances uh, and were not actually given any opportunity to thrive. Uh, and Enoch Emery basically is cast out, right? Uh, you can imagine that a certain type of person would just say enough is enough with his kind of fixative behavior and stuff. Um, there's a there's a scene where Hazel Motes is buying a car and his the son of the guy he's buying a car from like mutters to himself, and sometimes yells out curses. And the dad says, well, I don't know what's wrong with him, right? And he says he kind of jerks sometimes or something like that. It's almost a description as if he has Tourette's. And what is and what is uh what is O'Connor doing? O'Connor is actually telling stories about the people who would basically be the dregs, right? Who would have been treated as not befitting, you know, um, sort of polite society. I want to um, maybe talk a little bit about how the characters relate to religion. Um, there's a sense in which you get, you know, there's kind of the the masses throughout the novel which don't seem to care. You know, you get this idea Asa and Sabbath are outside the movie theater. Um, Hazel goes outside the movie theater. Hoover Schultz goes outside the movie theater, right? And for most of them, it's a lot of people just walking by. It's a lot of people uh, ignoring them or maybe stopping and listening and then moving on once it's over. It's it's another form of entertainment for them, you know. Um, so so the masses are really kind of indifferent. But I think it's interesting because each character, each specific character in the in the book has a sort of different attitude towards religion. Um, I mean, Asa and Hoover Schultz might be the most similar in that they are both grifters of some sort, right? They are using religion 
as a means uh, to get wealth or money or recognition or whatever. Um, we know that Hoover, I mean, Hoover Schultz goes and hires a different, another prophet in order to, uh, to sell people their own personal Jesus, basically, right? And, um, and this offends Hazel quite a bit um, because for all of his, all of his oddities, he is very much, um, he, he does actually believe what he's saying, I think, or at least he, he wants to be genuine and authentic. Um, mm-hmm. I, he doesn't I think, want to make money off of it. Right. right? He's uh, offended and, by the even possibility of making money off of it. Yeah, yeah. And he really hates the true prophet, as we, we, we can talk about. He hates Hoover Schultz, who wants to, to do this. He, 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 there's a kind of, you know, purity to Hazel in this way, where um, it's probably nice to mention here the, the line that O'Connor puts in her little author's note to the second edition, where she refers to this, she calls it a comic novel, which is uh, not obvious to me. But she says, like many comedies, it's about serious matters. But she calls Hazel Motes a Christian malgré lui, which is like I'm a, a Christian despite himself. So he's a he he's like a man of like honest conviction, who actually seems to have a kind of Christian disposition to the world, but like the content of his belief has sort of been hollowed out by the barbarity of it all, by just how bad things can be. And he can't let himself though turn to grifting he right. can't let him like you know you know that would be to let the, the world win or something his belief he, still has an integrity to it yeah yeah it may be it may be a Where, very different belief but it's there it, it's it's real to him i think exactly and he still has a sense he can never escape it actually he says all this stuff about how you don't need to be redeemed he can't escape the fact that he wants to be redeemed right he does this in in very explicit terms through penance. This is why he eventually blinds himself. He is shocked actually to hear that um, Asa Hawks is not a good man, or that he was not always a good man, because he thinks like only a really good man would blind himself for Jesus. Right. There's this moment where like, Sabbath is basically trying to seduce him, and she's like talking about how bad he was and how he wasn't a believer at one point, and he's like, "But he blinded himself." But he, you know, and he like keeps bringing this up. It is actually a funny moment because there's a there's a woman trying to seduce you, actually a girl trying to seduce you. Um, she's younger than fifteen, I think. She says something like, "Don't I even look 15? She's right. she's a young girl, right? Um, and the whole time he's like fixated about like, "Let me talk about your father." Right. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but you know he wants this, and then we eventually see from a young age it's revealed he would sometimes put rocks in his shoes as a kind of penance um, to punish himself. He does that later at the end of the novel, even wrapping himself in barbed wire. I mean, it's it's a it's an extreme version of like medieval practices of self-flagellation and things. You know, um, the uh, this is he he's he's almost like uh, Catherine of Siena, right, or something. Yeah, he's an extreme the, ascetic. The, yeah. He's an ascetic no matter where he is, right? I mean, there's even a sense in which the way he lives in the car is a kind of monastic becomes a kind of monastic cell almost you know yeah um, yeah yeah but but i did want to touch on because i think sabbath and enoch have very interesting uh orientations towards religion uh as well i mean i think with sabbath there's a kind of mechanism of control uh that she sees 
she sees how religion, I, which fits in with her character, right? Um, she mm-hmm. sees that. I mean, like, like the thing that kind of gets her uh, onto Hazel, I think, at the beginning is that he tears up the track that that they give her, that they give him, and and I think mm-hmm. she tries to make him feel guilty for that. Um, of course, he doesn't, or at least he he won't admit to it because he doesn't need to be redeemed or feel guilty about anything. Um, so there's that. But then I think, I think Enoch has a very interesting perspective when it comes to religion. I, I, I viewed him as almost being a sort of primitive, uh, like, like an early, uh, in the, in the sort of evolutionary development of, of religion, you know, almost this kind of numinous, uh, type of religion. You know, he's, he, he has this fixation on this mummy in the, in the museum, and he thinks somehow if he gets it out, it's going to be, um, it's going to, it's going to change his life. You know, he's got, um, he, the, his whole thing with the gorilla, um, and, and how he wants to kind of please the gorilla. And then when the gorilla, uh, the guy in the suit kind of lashes out to him, you know, it, it totally throws him in a tailspin. I, I, I just found him to have almost, I mean, he was almost caveman like in his religious, uh, views i don't know if you have any thought on that but i it was just very interesting it's like he had the little tabernacle in his room where he put the mummy and mm-hmm. uh i don't know it just was very interesting yeah it's in some which almost like um items are like totemic yeah right? yeah because, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he wants to sort of purify them he wants to show them a certain kind of reverence the the mummy needs a place even the whole before the mummy can be brought the whole room has to be cleaned mm-hmm. right he, he he washes everything it's where he discovers that his his bed is pure gold, right? Which is a very fantastical kind of thing to suddenly have. Um, it's why he has to change all. Like he realizes that the moose picture, he has to take the frame out to make the moose look smaller, and then set it so that like some another person is like looking at him, right? He's he's got this whole kind of ritualistic and totemic kind of aspect to, uh, towards it, where maybe he can sort of appease these forces, um and treat them with the proper reverence and then things will work out. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, um, he even, he even buries his clothes at the end of the, 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 you know, he steals everything and he is eventually allowed to kind of descend into being an ape. Yep. Cause he gets to put the costume on. He still finds it disappointing <laughs> at the end. You know, can't, he can't, he can't catch a break, but he gets to kind of revert back a bit well i think it's interesting because then you compare him to hazel and you know i i think enoch hears hazel say we need a new jesus right that's that's one of hazel's big slogans we Mm -hmm. need a new jesus and he means we need a sort of an everyman who's actually only human right without the divinity stuff uh you know a sort of of sort of um demythologized jesus uh yeah and and so when when Enoch hears that, he thinks, well, the mummy in the in the museum will be the new Jesus. Like for him, yeah, it's a really yeah. physical, like like you said, totem to type reality. Yeah, yeah. For Hazel, it's a purely uh, kind of symbolic interior. You know, it's this kind of yeah. humanism. Uh, but for him, it's very ethereal. I think it's not uh, like as concrete. Hazel eventually says to Hoover Schultz, like, I didn't mean it when I said it. basically it was a way of saying something. Right. Right. But one of the things I love about the interactions with Hazel and Enoch, um, especially with the mummy, Enoch says, we need a new Jesus who has no blood to spare. Mm. You know what doesn't have any blood to spare? <laughs> a mummy. 
It's like it's painfully literal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so he goes and finds the dried out husk of a of a human being. Yep. And then of course we also get to see Sabbath with the mummy later. Right. In a way that's really nice. And what does she do? Mothers she tries it. to care for it, right? She wants to mother it, right? She wants that kind of she wants that maternal affection she never got. Her mother died in childbirth. And she never had paternal affection either. So she's never had any kind of parental affection and or or hasn't had it for a very long time. And her instinct is actually first. Yeah, she is going to she's going to mother starts calling it. She says, oh, what's your where's your daddy or something in reference to Hazel. Right? And she I think, goes to sort of build a family. And I think Hazel is doubly offended by this because, first of all, there is that continual misinterpretation of what he means by new Jesus. But also, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, he's come home from war and he goes home and his mom's not there. So there's that mm-hmm. kind of abandonment. And I, I, I think there is a sense in which he is always, in some ways, looking for uh, a, a mother-type figure that he never quite get, quite gets. I mean, the landlady at the end kind of does that for him. But um, you kind of get the feeling he tolerates her without really caring about her one way or the other too much. Yeah, the final scene where he's brought back to the landlady, uh, she it's described as like like a perfectly controlled expression or something. Like as she talks to him, there is no expression on his face. <laughs> right. I thought and that was because he was dead. Is it? I thought he's he dead? died in the car on the way back because they they hit him in the head. Oh, that maybe that's that could be it. It was resistless and dry. Yeah, yeah. But she's that, talking to him like he was, like she did when he was alive, yeah. because there's oh, yeah. no real difference, I think, in the way he acts with her, with the landlady. He just kind of sits there and lets her talk. Like they go, they sit on the porch oh, every yeah, day, yeah. and she's, you know, she's talking to him, and he's like, whatever. I mean, he's yeah, not I really. I can't believe I it actually. There's a sentence that just says this: "He died in the squad car." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It, I like my eyes just completely glossed over the this fact. But she can, um, I mean, what he is, right? I mean, well, this is kind of interesting, actually. It's two different mothering figures, kind of. She also kind of had this idea to marry him, but really it was kind of a maternal relationship. There was never anything sexual about it, it seems, uh, with the, the landlady. Two different mothering figures choosing something dead to mother. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Sabbath does it, and then uh, the landlady does it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't lash out violently to the landlady like he does with Sabbath because with Sabbath uh, he I mean he takes the he takes the mummy and just throws it away yeah um, yeah he you know he doesn't but I think that's because at that point in in um, Hazel's progression he has accepted that any hardship that comes his way is just part of this penance mm. it's just something he has to pay Right. So I think that even her, right, as long as she doesn't stop him from, you know, wearing the rocks in his shoes, wearing the barbed wire, you know, doing all of this, um, there won't there's no need for violence there. Because, like, Mm. at the time with with Sabbath, that's when he's kind of trying to deny that something that there's a need for redemption. Right. But he's clearly can't really believe it. Right. This is why. He actually revises his teachings, sometimes on a day-to-day basis. First, there's just, uh, there's 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 no Jesus. 
he kind of talks about as if Jesus might have existed, but he's just a man or something like this. And then it becomes like, well, you have to blaspheme in order to mm-hmm. get to the truth. And then eventually he says, no, the, the, if you if you think it's blasphemy, that means you still believe in something. Right. And, and so those are the kinds of – so he's revising his beliefs, seeing how far he has to go to like purge himself of basically all of this kind of religious thinking, and he can't do it. And so mm-hmm. in the end – he in the end he blinds himself and the end he puts the rocks back on and the end he wraps himself in, in barbed wire and so his relationship to this figure is going to change right yeah so the landlady can be different there i think even um sabbath comes back at some point and yes. she um leaves because she's surprised that he actually did it she at first tells everybody oh he blinded himself he blinded himself because the old grift can come back. The thing she'd had with her father can come back. She already has a role to play. But then she realizes he actually did it. And she's like, well, I didn't sign up for this to be with a man who would actually blind himself for Jesus. Like, well, why would you ever do that? Right. Um, and so she just leaves. And then, uh, and, 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 but, but Hazel's like, if she wants my money, she can take it. You know, like that's the, the he, he hasn't, he has no, he, he, he's done being violent towards her as well. He's he's just gonna do his do his penance. So I have a I have a question and discussion point, and I don't I don't feel like this was ever clearly answered, or if it was, I I it just escaped me. So Hazel has this car, right? And I think the car, in some ways, symbolizes his autonomy or freedom. You know, he's able mm-hmm. to go from place to place. Um, like I said, there's a sense in which I think it becomes a monastic cell. Um, you know, there are times where he kind of hides from the world in the car. Um, he uses the car to kill the true prophet mm-hmm. character, right? Who's just a guy, you know, I mean, he's just, he's got six kids and a wife and he just wants to provide for his family. Uh, and Hazel runs him down in the car. And then, and then as the guy is dying, you know, Hazel's like listening, listening to his last confession and then like hits him in the back basically as a way to try and, you know, I think finish the, finish the job, you know, wipes the blood off his car, moves on like nothing, yeah. nothing happened. Um, and then it's not very long after that he's out, he's going to a different city, which he already resolved to do because, uh, because, uh, Hoover Schultz and this new prophet had kind of, um, you know, taken away his monopoly on the church without Christ. What was, what was, what was the name? It's the, it's the church of the Christ whole- without Christ. The Holy Church of Christ without Christ. That's right. That's right. Because so, the only the only church, by the way, that's named the only denomination we would recognize, I think, that's named in the book is the Church of Christ. Yes, you're right. Which you're is right. which is kind of a evangelical before in, in a very older way, kind of charismatic, kind of uh, uh, American. Denomination very common in the South. Yeah. 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 They were uh, like I remember where are, we were. Are, there are, were always a number of Church are of they Christ the... and disciples of Christ to which they're related. Yeah, are they so they're restorationists, so they're right. like the type that really want to restore the old true church. I think they're also no music or at all acapella. The conservative ones are. They split over that. That's where the disciples of Christ and the Church of Christ yeah. split was over the use of music, but I think for yeah. a long time it was acapella or or no music at all. Yeah. Um yeah. So 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 this happens, right? This kind of violent outburst. Um I mean the way that the way that Hazel handles it in the moment you don't gather once he kills the guy that he feels bad about it. Mm-hmm. Um but then we have I I mean it's just a couple scenes later where he's out for the drive he's he's going to the, a new city, you know, and the, a cop pulls him over. 
basically tells him, I don't like the way you look. Like, you weren't speeding or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Hazel tells him, well, I don't have a license. Uh, the cop basically has him pull up on the top of a hill and then pushes his car off the hill so that he doesn't have a car anymore. And it's at that moment that Hazel just kind of, like, falls on his knees and then decides to walk home, mm-hmm. buys lime, and blinds himself, right? Yeah. So you really get a shift there. And I was trying to figure out why. I mean, what about that incident makes him do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 it kind of, it kind of felt abrupt to me. You know, he's going to go to a new city. He's going to keep doing this thing where he preaches the the church without Christ. And then all of a sudden he decides, no, I'm going to go back and I'm going to blind myself and I'm not going to leave the five block radius that he, he then walked on. And then of course, and then of course it's a cop that randomly kills him too, right? They mm-hmm. just like hit him in the head with a, with a, with a club. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, both, both instances feel incredibly random. Yeah. 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 It's interesting in a way it's like the most fitting way for him to die. Because um, he thinks everything's just kind of random. There's nothing. There's no point or purpose to it all. But sure. O'Connor clearly doesn't think that, right? <laughs> right? It's almost a, a weird vindication um, where there are the world is just going to be cruel, right? The cop who pushes his his car off of the hill is a really strange moment for me. Like you don't have any motivation other than that he thinks that hazel is weird maybe troublesome and he just like wants to get rid of him but like he ends up just bringing him back to the city right um right i you know it's it's such a it's it's such a strange moment it's it's like i i don't know quite what to what what to make of it and then like what is the switch that flips right or does a switch flip, right? Does I I kind I kind of wonder does Hazel think he's reverting in some fashion, right? Because he's not preaching anymore. He says it. He's like I, I you know, um, he's I'm not too a busy to preach. I think yeah. he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all he's doing is just walking every day. Yeah, or just you know sit there. He doesn't drink. He doesn't drink any whiskey. He barely you know he eats just whatever food is served. Um, it's it. This is why if, I think at the end of the novel, I kind of end up saying, what did I just read? You know, be, <laughs> right. it just doesn't have a resolution in a way that you would think, right? I I don't know. I actually get this in some a lot with 20th century novels and like, er, like mid 20th century novels, like a lot, where they just kind of like end on this and then something bad happens to the main, to the, to the protagonist and we're all you know, all left with to think about it or, or, or something. Right. I never, I never quite know where they want us to go next. Mm. Right. Um, this is maybe a shift with modern literature from like a more, you know, when, 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 when Shakespeare writes, there's a resolution at the end, mm-hmm. either a great tragedy occurs and we're all left to say like, what a great tragedy or, things are avenged or in the comedies all is resolved when you read boethius uh when we read constellations of philosophy we still know boethius is going to die but he's reached peace lady philosophy has counseled him enough that he's that he's reached peace but with a lot of mid-20th century novels you just get this like 
something bad will happen or there'll be like a moment of barbarism or something like this. And it's not clear what the significance of the moment is in, in, in the broader, the broader point. Maybe, and, and you know, of course someone is going to write a whole doctoral dissertation on like, that's why it's significant. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, <clears throat> there's, if Hazel's car symbolizes a kind of autonomy or freedom, right? Because that's what he's after, I think. I mean, you know, there's this idea once you get rid of the of the Christian stuff, you don't have anything you have to feel bad for. You can just be yourself. You know, you can do what you want to do. Um, and you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to ask for forgiveness. You know, you uh, there's nothing to be forgiven of. Um, and that car, I think, is really significant for him uh in in terms of this progression when that is taken away from him which ironically is taken away from him from another person's car right after he's used his car to take it away from someone else in in the murder that he commits um i do i do think that probably disabuses him in some way of this notion mm-hmm. that and then I, I think, I mean, there's a sense in which uh, I see his death as a kind of Christological mm-hmm. statement, you know? I mean, he's this kind of poor guy who's who's murdered by a, a, a officer of the state, you know, um, put to death, kind of, you know, unjustly. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do think... There is something actually very clearly Christological about Hazel in general. Yes. Um, he's also probably in a um, a more mythical way um, related to like the um, the like the Fisher King, right? Mm. Who um, where he's he's taking on the the pains and sufferings of the world, right? Uh, this is a very fitting. Uh, topic for right now in the year because um, um, it's almost Holy Week that's right everyone this has become an Eastern Orthodox podcast only <laughs> we're on the old calendar suckers uh, but you know it's uh, it's but but but, it, but the point is Hazel is like taking on the wounds of the world or something onto himself mm-hmm. um, it's like a very literal rendering of uh, of 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 this kind of almost somewhat very good, somewhat very bad kind of almost sponge theory of the atonement where Jesus kind of like absorbs it all, (laughs) you you, you know? Um, And, or, or a very, very, I would, I would say a very, very bad like caricature of an almost Anselmian kind of view a caricature of an almost Anselmian view. I know, I know you're going to raise an eyebrow if I say it's an Anselmian view, but a caricature of an almost Anselmian view where it's like, no, a certain physical penance, a certain kind of pain must be rendered, right? Justice demands it, right? And the world is mm. so awful that we have that, that we have to have this. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm actually, by the way, on team Anselm is not the problem. Uh, uh, which is, makes me a minority uh, amongst Orthodox converts, but 
you do get the sense too that the world in which they inhabit is a highly violent one not only because of some of the grotesque imagery um hazel running someone over the car the police you know police officer pushing his car down the down the ravine or the or the cop hitting him with the with the with the um the billy club but but uh it's actually something enix says right he's like yeah you know you walk around and people don't care and they just run right into you you know um it's an uncaring world um that lashes out violently um and so that that hazel becomes the recipient of that violence mm-hmm. i think does point us to um at least in in o'connor's mind certainly what what jesus does you know mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being a scapegoat mm-hmm. um herbert mccabe the the theologian says you know if you haven't loved you're not fully human but if you've loved you will be killed um and so i think there is a sense in which he becomes a christ figure in that way he receives the violence that the world is is pouring out to what degree and maybe maybe that's kind of what he determines there mm-hmm. uh in that it, when you know when he's kind of on his knees after the after he's yeah, lost yeah. his car uh but it's 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 it is hard to say because uh he never really says much of substance after that moment um you know, one of the most touching moments for me in the book is when Enoch is like really struck by the man in the gorilla suit that he doesn't know is a man. And he reaches out and he's like, I'm Enoch Emery. I attended this school. I'm here because my dad told me, you know, he's trying to make basically a human connection with a beast or like yep. what he thinks is a beast. And then the man in the suit grabs him, right? Pulls him close or puts his head up close or something and says, you go to hell. Yeah. And it's yeah. just, I, I, that one, that one hurt me. You know, just yeah. a couple of times where you hear it and you just go, oh, man, because it's so painfully earnest on Enoch's part and the people of the city won't won't take it, right? Mm. But either, there's this sense almost, here's an idea. This is a purgatory novel. Okay. This is like, this is like the city in The Great Divorce. Where famously in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, when someone died there in this town, they all hate each other, right? They're all conflicted. They're all, and they have to kind of decide what they're going to do. And and kind of crucially, salvation is a matter of getting out, right? <laughs> and then stay, right. and staying out. And Hazel can't get himself out yet. Mm. And Enoch can't get himself out. Um, and get, and they're also not all clear on where they came from. The porter who's just passing through doesn't want to say where, where 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 he's from, right? In a way that all of the people in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce are kind of they've been there. Sure, they weren't always from there, but where are they from isn't the isn't the, isn't the important part, right? But they're it's like they, a shadowy they, existence. But yeah, of. yeah, but but they bicker, right? And they and they and, and um, you know Enoch thinks that um, he thinks the girl at like the soda fountain might be in love with him, so he tries to flirt <laughs> with her. And all she talks about is how grotesque he is, right? And he's like got a pus-filled face, and, um, and she's sipping whiskey from a fruit can under the uh, under the bar, right? There's like all all this stuff, right? Like there aren't there are so few moments of real kindness. Everyone you encounter basically at a on a uh, on the street is mean. There's the right. there's the, the the preacher. The you know there's there's Asa 
who's stealing from you. There's the guy selling the peelers who's probably ripping you off. There um, is the guy, he's with three very large women and taking them to the movies and he's making all these very weird jokes like got to keep these girls yep. fed and stuff like this. Um, there's the the lapsed Catholic boy who wants to go to a whorehouse, goes to it. Ha- uh, uh, Hazel tries to say, do you want to join my church where there's no such thing as redemp- uh, redemption because you don't need to be redeemed? And this guy's like, actually, if you don't repent, you're going to burn in eternal hellfire. And then says, right. do you want to go back tomorrow? <laughs> right. Tomorrow. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's a beautiful use of, of capital letters in that in that section where he calls it a lapsed Catholic. And the, the L is capitalized, too, as if it's its own denomination. Um, and so they're all kind of in this purgatorial state of like needing to get out like there's like uh, 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 and and it's it's almost kind of a between place. Right. Everyone's from mm. somewhere or going somewhere, even though everyone kind of seems kind of seems stuck. That's yeah. sort of my new theory of wise blood. Sure, sure, sure. No, I like that. I like that because what you what one of the things one of the common characteristics in Lewis is that you know nobody quite understands their own problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're always like kind of trapped in these cycles, and they're like kind of like why is you know why am I not happy? I'm just and, and it's like the answer's right there. That's why when they do get on the bus and they go to heaven, you know, someone meets them and tells them what their problem is and it's like you have to let go of that in order to to leave and uh and it's like a lot of the characters in this novel don't have that so they're stuck kind of spinning their wheels you know it's finally hazel it feels like who breaks that cycle in some way but again it's like well how Mm -hmm. i still don't i'm still not sure how he breaks that cycle but he does um because he certainly changes uh yeah yeah If you were asked by someone, like, should I read Wise Blood? What do you think you would say to them? Because it's not a yes or no question, I think. You know, it, it's phrased like one, but you. Yeah. Right. I would, yeah, it would probably depend on the person and what they've read. I, knowing kind of like what you said earlier, I, I've not really read much O'Connor, especially beyond this. Um, my wife has. She really loves the short stories. So I, depending on the person, I may say maybe go read her short stories first and then read Wise Blood mm, yeah. um, just so that this doesn't – maybe this, so this isn't your first or only impression of her. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think it's necessarily out of her character. It's just – I don't know. We, it just – you know, maybe maybe try some short stories and see what you we think. We very rarely – And then invest. We very rarely recommend – I don't, not just you and me, we, but everyone very rarely recommend an author's first book as the one to read. Right. right? And so there is something to that. I just want to mention, I read this this nice article on JSTOR using their like 100 free articles a, a, a month thing. Um, even though, by the way, their e-reader is terrible. Like their, their interface is awful. It's, it's a very right. unpleasant reading experience. But it was published in like the O'Connor Review. I'll link it in the show notes so people can check it out if they want. Um, and it was called... Um, was Hazel or it was called is Hazel Motes. No, no, no. It's called is no, it's called Hazel Motes is not black. And I had to read that because the first time I read it, I somehow walked away with the impression that basically every main character in this novel was black. And mm. um that is probably just I just didn't do a good enough job reading it. I sort of talk about this in other places. I often will read something for the first time very quickly. 
and then you know pick up on stuff it's funny to pick up to not pick up on this because their skin is mentioned a lot actually and color in general is mentioned a lot in this book this is something that just really struck me in a second read o'connor just mentions colors all the time rat colored car uh the the garishly blue uh suit the color of the hats the color of like the rollers that a woman has in her hair you know all this she yep. uses colors all the time and i i totally got it wrong and then it turned out though that um a professor wrote this article about teaching o'connor and it was uh at xavier university which is a catholic university um and i believe it's the xavier near where i grew up in near cincinnati mm-hmm. um which has a very large black student population and a lot of her students assume hazel Motes is black and in, in, interesting fact um but she said her students in general have a very hard time relating to o'connor hmm. that something about o'connor's writing just doesn't strike them as interesting even um, they're also, I think, highly offended by all of the Southern cultural rev- references and cultural milieu because, like, o- O'Connor's, like, a very Southern writer. Right. And we could have debates about how we should respond to all of that and stuff. Uh, but it does make it a little bit hard to immediately recommend it to someone. You, yeah. you know, this professor kind of mentioned that the things she had to mention – and she taught a class, by the way, called the Theology of Flannery O'Connor. It was a cross-listed English and theology class. She would like co-teach it with a theology professor. And it, she said, you know, I had to explain what what stamp books like were for like food like food rationing kind of things, or I had to explain what iron lungs were or what a green book was, like this kind of stuff. Now we all know what a green book was because it's a movie that apparently shouldn't have won an Oscar. Um, you know, there. But she had to explain all these cultural references. She also had to explain, for instance. There's like a reference in one of O'Connor's not um, short stories to like a very large black woman in a um, in a doorway, and she's kind of sexualized, and her her um, students are often like, "Well, that's inappropriately sexualizing a black woman," and the teacher has to explain to them that actually just like at the time, like larger women with like certain kind of curves were just like very desirable, blah blah blah. You know, they, like all of the well, you the, see that at the beginning of this book, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So all of these kind of cultural references are just like missing for us it's almost like right. a writer from a different world o'connor is about as close to like the newest kind of book we will read on this podcast um that's not totally true because we are open to reading someone like tony morrison who we'll talk about later but she's getting really close to the edge and yet it can feel like she's writing from a different world and it's it's almost like i i tell this joke a lot it's not very funny but i keep telling it because i want it to be funny which is that like going to like China was less weird for me than going to Canada because like, okay, Canada seems so American. And then you see the, the milk in bags, uh, or, or something, you know, like, um, or someone hands you a disconcerting. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the uncanny Valley. Right. And awake O'Connor might be kind of like our uncanny Valley as well. It feels very American. It's a part of America though, that we all kind of pretend didn't existed. Uh, or didn't it didn't used to exist, right? We we all kind of pretend it was different, just like how different it could be. <laughs> like, uh, um, it's you know, it just feels like another world, and so to recommend yeah. it to someone is hard. Um, 
unless you give them all of this, but no one wants to, here's, here's a book. And by the way, here's a whole suitcase full of baggage. I want to hand to you with it. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I think, I think O'Connor too, I, I mean, she does this on purpose. I think it's not just, um, she's not a, a realist in the sense of, of she's giving you a, a, a nice day-to-day picture of what life in the South looks like. She is intentionally focusing on the bizarre, the strange, the grotesque. Oh, yeah, yeah, know? yeah. So it's like, so so even that, you're. it's like not only are there these cultural references that you have to understand, but also then you have to understand kind of use those in order to understand the kind of larger thing she's doing, which is almost using caricature type uh work so it's 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 it is i think you're exactly right that this is this is sort of a, an uncanny valley it's a, it's a bizarro world you and know? so i would just say it's just a very challenging book in that regard even though it doesn't it feel like page to page a difficult read this is actually a book you could read in an, e- in an evening if you were like sufficiently focused right but it's just not an easy book it's gonna leave you unsettled and you're gonna feel a little strange from it um and it, this is this is why I tell people to only read old books. This is this, this, this is why I say you know the older the better, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Shakespeare never made me feel this way. That's right. That's no, right. I, but I would say overall, it's it's good. You should read it. Just reader beware or think about it. You know. There's yes, you know, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good warning. I think that's a good yeah. warning. So perhaps we can uh, perhaps we can go to our our closing segment of uh, well actually we have penultimate section tonight because we have some business to discuss I think at the uh, after we do this but but we'll do end notes first so Jared do you have anything uh, that you would add it was kind of supplemental uh, you did mention the JSTOR article which will be in the in the show yeah notes. you should read this there's a whole body of literary scholarship and criticism about O'Connor and um. Just like all bodies of literary criticism and scholarship, most of it's bad, but occasionally there will be something insightful in those journals, and I'll link to one or two of the things that I find. Um, but as for these kinds of novels that deal with, you know, if I'm thinking of who would I want to recommend to pair along with, with O'Connor, typically I'm looking at someone who also deals with um, violence, who also deals with the grotesque. And I honestly think the, the thing that I, I want to recommend is instead you should read Mary or with it, you should read something like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because I think it's dealing with the same kind of monstrousness. The, uh, the it's dealing with this problem of like, where do you actually find humanity in the story? Uh, but it gives you a very kind of distinctively different period, you know, um, uh, different, a different outlook on it than you would find here. I re- I, very I really struggled with this month though. Usually every month I have a very clear idea of what I would recommend with it. I really struggled with this one. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly um it, I I kind of agree uh it's it is hard to come up with with these sometimes. I think for me so two I'll have two two recommendations. Um the f- first is another Catholic novel. Um, also set in the South. That's also a comedy, except except this one I think is actually like laugh out loud funny at times. Love in the Ruins by Walker Percy. 
um, which is fantastic. I mean, it's so good. And in some ways, um, I think he's he's maybe a little more uh, culturally prophetic, which is what he's trying to do. I don't think it's not that Flannery O'Connor is trying to do that and fails. I just don't know that she's trying to to, to do that. But anyway, so that that is another good look at the Catholic novel, um, and and it's kind of a similar setting and similarly absurd, um, but in but it is very funny. The other thing, you know, if, if you're interested in learning more about Flannery O'Connor and her her kind of life story and 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 the the background that that made her such a unique and interesting writer, there is a documentary about her called Uncommon Grace: The Life of Flannery O'Connor, um, and uh, I believe it maybe streams on pbs or something but um but they have i think a biographer of hers on there named brad gooch uh a professor named david king but then another another guy named william sessions who's a professor who i think wrote a biography on o'connor and is was also one of her friends um so kind of cool uh cool look at at the woman you know um and uh anyways i have a i have a parishioner um named david who is a huge uh, a Flannery fan. He always tells me he has a big crush on her. So if you want to get to know her and maybe maybe see her uh, as you know, just how her history may have influenced her writing, then I would definitely definitely say um, say that uh, Uncommon Grace would be a good good source for that. All right, excellent. So um, some business to attend to. Uh, our next book is going to be Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill. And I think that uh, Jared warned everyone uh, last time that, you know, if you think we're, we've gone too easy on some of our books, uh, we will not do that <laughs> for utilitarianism. Uh, spoiler alert, we're not utilitarians. Um, so that's next month. The, the following month is, uh, is a TBD. Uh, we're trying to get someone... Um, to come on and, and we'll discuss a work and we'll announce what that work will be when, once we have confirmation with uh, with our guest. But in July, we wanted to do a, a reader's choice. And so we asked our, our, um, our subscribers, our paid subscribers, to nominate books that they would be interested in us um, discussing. We uh, picked out the four uh, sort of most interesting or uh, not most interesting, but the, the four that, that kind of made sense um, for us to, to, to potentially do. So um, we're going to put a poll up on our Substack and invite you, if you're a paid subscriber, to vote in that and determine what it is that we'll be reading next. So those four uh, choices will be Hamlet by Shakespeare, uh, I think would be would be interesting to read on the heels of having read Macbeth. Um, Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. The Book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa, and then finally, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. So those are our four choices. So we will have it up. Uh, up, we'll have that up soon. Maybe, um, maybe in the next week or so, and uh, that way people can go ahead and vote, and we can announce it, and so everybody can get their books and make sure that they read ahead. Absolutely, especially if we're going to read longer ones. It's always nice to have a bit more warning, just so we can fit this in. But um, yeah, I think I think yeah. none of those are. I might go. Oh, you're saying? I was gonna say I might go ahead and buy and start reading Brothers Karamazov just in case it wins. I'll start reading it now. That maybe I'll be done by July. <laughs> Dostoevsky is not my favorite writer, but Crime and Punishment is my favorite book. It's my it's the it's best novel I think. Um, basically, I think it's the best novel ever written. Mm. But um, but I haven't read it in a little while. I haven't read a lot of Dostoevsky lately. I do wonder, actually, if I would think things differently about Dostoevsky now that I'm not a Protestant. 
Um, I wonder how things would change. Um, hmm. Interesting. I would like to point out that in this episode, Jared has been much more religiously technical than me, the priest, has been. So, <laughs> I mean, people don't know this about me. I am a I am a technically a published theologian. So um, I have one theology publication. So every once in a while, I have to I have to bring this out. But um, no, I actually thought always thought. Crime and Punishment was like the ultimate Protestant novel. That's what I used to kind of like jokingly argue because like all he has to do is he needs to repent. Like that's just like, you know, he just needs, he just needs to repent and have faith, but he, but he, but he won't do it. Uh, and now I see it as like much, there's something much deeper going on. Um, but in, anyway, I, I love all of those options. I've never read the book of disquiet, never even heard of it actually until it was recommended, but it seemed like interesting enough to put, I just want to say, though, when we asked for recommendations, we got so many good ones. Yeah. Our subscribers, the paid subscribers especially, uh, is just a really well-read, literate, diverse community in the sense, like, I was surprised by some of the – there. I was not expecting the Book of Disquiet. Victor Frankl was, was recommended. Uh, Dostoevsky's recommended. Vanity Fair was mentioned. You know, like, lots of – just lots of cool stuff. And – Virginia, Virginia Woolf. Wolf, you know, I mean, this, these were people clearly in line with kind of the mission of the podcast, but not, yeah. uh, uh, but not, but not like sticking to like only Shakespeare, even though someone recommended, uh, Hamlet and it's like, that's a great pick too. Right. Uh, I, I mean, we're lovers of the canon here, so there's a reason we would want to talk about all these. I just loved like, it, these were clearly people who had things they wanted to read. And they thought, let's hear it. And, yes. I, and I and I love it. It, it. When we were talking about building a community around this podcast in the first place, that's kind of the the end goal. Like that is like, and, and it's and it's really starting to cult, be cultivated in a really nice way. So yes. thank you to all of you who had ideas. Remember, we do this a couple times a year, so you can you know participate. But also the discussions and stuff are really good. People have good thoughts yeah, in those comments. It's been cool, I think, too. Now that we've been around, I mean, not we're not that old, but we've been around for long enough that um that some of our discussions now have you know they started with one book and the same discussion continues through new works that we read um and so uh, that's kind of it's really cool and of course it's all we always want more people to be able to jump into those conversations but just to see those those mature and kind of you know we we consider things from different angles and um and using different different works as springboards to to explore more themes and stuff it's just it's really really awesome i it, we're very uh, blessed i think to have uh, the people we do who follow follow yeah. us so thank, so thank you. you for all that if you're interested in uh voting on that last one though now would be the time to go become a paid supporter and uh really none of those will be wrong but please help us choose that'll be great yeah this episode should come out the tuesday after easter um for those of us who are westerners and celebrate it on the right day uh and so and so i celebrate um, it we'll put up the the council say i should celebrate it i i don't believe in fake made up scientific calendars that the church fathers didn't think mattered right this is (laughs) this is That sounds about right. That sounds about right. (laughs) Well, anyway, so we'll put this up. We'll put this up maybe uh, maybe a day or two after the episode goes live so that uh, people have an opportunity. to. Absolutely. Um, All right. Well, I think that is everything we have then. I think so. All right. We'll see you next time.